Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Settled? Wind breathing out there? Small beasties prowling beyond? Hear their padfalls in the snow? Fire crackling? Curl up. First, thank you, you several thousand who've helped us kick off this project in the best way for kicking off any project, by attending. I've had letters, comments, suggestions, and we'll probably try all of them at one time or another. Our focus, though, will be on story of varying lengths. That's going to be always. Perhaps long-form fiction done in episodes. That'll be fun someday, but I like my dark passages begun and ended in one shivery sitting, don't you? Of course you do. For those of you who want to send notes, plaudits, curses, comments, the email is tales to terrify, that's one word, tales to terrify at gmail.com. And if any of you out there are interested in participating by doing reviews, writing, fact articles about horror, dark fantasy, or whatever strikes your fancy, let us know. Use that email, Terrify at gmail.com. 
and make our heads spin. I imagine many of you are here because of your connection to the Starship Sofa, the Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa. I'd like to remind you about the book, Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 3. It's 24 stories, five fact articles, original art, photographs, the works. It's a great companion to the Starship Online. I'm holding it in my hand right now, looking at it, and it's kind of a beauty. It's a forever sort of thing. Stop by, pick up a couple of copies. No, really, really. Uh, if you want there to be a Starship Sofa Stories Volume 4, you really should buy it. And it is quite, quite lovely. And we have a fact article from Mike Allen. As I mentioned, I want to start doing a lot more fact articles, and Mike Allen's is the newest. Of course, everything we do here is new, since this is only the third show. In addition to our main fiction tonight, we're going to have a bit of dark poetry of the story sort. It's by this past year's Risling Award winner, Claire Suzanne Elizabeth Cooney, or C.S.E. Cooney, as she prefers to be known, or just Claire to those of us who know her here in Chicago. Uh, she's a terrific writer, and, well, you'll see how good a reader she is. To avoid gushing here, here are the facts as presented when asked. The lady collects knives and books. Her fiction and poetry can be found in Rich Horton's Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy for 2011 and 2012. Also in Steam Powered 2 and Clockwork Phoenix 3, at Apex, Subterranean, Strange Horizons, Podcastle, Goblin Fruit, and Mythic Delirium. Her book, Jack of the Hills, came out with Papaveria Press in 2011, which will also release her poetry collection, How to Flirt in Fairyland, and other wild rhymes, and that'll be out in April of 2012. Claire was, as I mentioned, the recipient of the 2011 Risling Award in Long Poem, and is blog editor for Blackgate Magazine. She keeps her own blog at csecooney.livejournal.com. That's C-S-E-C-O-O-N-E-Y. And that's the factual that. Claire was one of the old Twilight Tales gang here in Chicago, a listener, an encourager, sometime reader. And when she read... Oh, <laughs> well, everybody was a little in love with Claire... I've known her since the early part of the century. She's a book lady, uh, works in bookstores. The kind that when you go in, she's the one that you want to wait on you. For several reasons, but really because, because of that smile. Looks like she knows a lot more than you do, but will always share it with you in a slant way, in a way that teases. I did a road trip, Chicago to Toronto, with her and a couple of other writers uh, some time ago. I rode Shotgun, and writer-publisher Roger Dale Trexler drove. My first solo book, Just North of Nowhere, was being released in Toronto at the 2007 World Horror Convention up there. Claire and Wayne Allen Sally, a writer of whom you'll hear more in later shows, shared the back of the van with a hundred or so copies of Just North. And during the trip, Claire managed to read all 336 pages of it. She liked it. Oh, yes, uh... She has an imaginary butler, name of Simmons. Just a few weeks ago, Claire left Chicago, headed east to my old part of the world. Uh, well, 
Chicago's lessened, Boston's enriched. The poem she's reading today is Wild Over Tombs Does Grow. It was nominated for the 2009 Risling Award, long form, and it first appeared in the now-defunct Doorways magazine, where Claire was featured poet. Shut up, Larry. Here's Claire. Wild Over Tombs Does Grow In the early days, sacrifice is required. When the winter months are lean, mothers leave their babies on the hills or in the open window sills. Mostly girl children, it's true, but in the drowns of night, when the distant reaches are all sunk in white, a young boy might do too. Years quicken, mud blossoms, winter habits wither, the elders gather in the village hall. Or we apes, asked one, to give our babies to the graves, dangling their bones from the willows as bait to save ourselves. Someone else, a thin man, said, We require these deaths, lest the tall ones come again, as wolves and ravens walking in the skins of men, each in his saffron rags, with a light upon his shoulder and a rose burning in his hand. Another said she was, or had been, a mother. They come because we feed them something sweet and rare. They all decided there that what they needed most was a place, some safe distance from their homes, where they might house their dead and keep the bones. The graveyard was designed by the finest mines of that time, two hundred acres wide with gates of iron. It would be blessed, of course, by Pastor Fell, and guarded from the fiends of hell by some brute beast, mute but loyal, clever, and without a soul. It would be the first sacrifice, first blood spilled, first grave dug of that ground. They chose for this task a dog who belonged to Susa Rhymes. Susa Rhymes was four years old, so was Brack, her big black dog. They had shared the cradle, and what little milk the cow could spare watered down. Susa ventured nowhere without Brack, and everyone knew Brack would die for his Sue. The perfect guardian. So, Goody Rhymes, one night, drugged the stew and carted Brack by wheelbarrow to the consecrated site which Pastor Fell had roped off with pegs and miles of twine, having blessed the soil already with salt and holy wine. In the middle of the field there was a large flat stone. Goody Rhymes went over where the men were standing to dump the contents of her wheelbarrow. Three men held Brack down, and she stretched his neck to the sky. Pastor Fell stood gray in the cloud light. His mustache lay like worms against his mouth. He did not believe reluctance was a virtue. He thought it best to get this uncouth business done as soon as possible, and so it was his hand, unchecked, that dealt the death of Susa Rhymes. 
It was an accident. At least, no witness left alive confessed it otherwise. There was a little girl who, waking up betimes, had followed mother and beloved Brack so close behind, had seen the field, the stone, the gray man in the moon, had watched the pastor lick his lips and heft the hatchet high. Perhaps Pastor Fell had not seen her. It was dark, after all, and sudden. When it was done, everyone was silent. Even Goody Rhymes just thinned her lips, keeping quiet. Brack began to stir from sleep with groans and tremblings of his paws, knowing in his dreams the flaws that warped the night. So Pastor Fell let fall his hatchet once again, with all his might. Susa and her big black dog lie tangled in a single grave, unmarked and faithfully ignored. Their names were forgotten by the next burial, Pastor Fell presiding, but down there in the dark, she turns and whispers, Brack. And down there in the dark, he whispers, Sosa, back. What follows are desolate centuries. The woods are stripped, the oil bled from wells, the graveyard filled, the village rose and fell until nothing was left but a place to keep the bones. Brack and Sousa Rhymes find this arrangement fine. Sousa spends her days making gardens out of skulls and bony thighs, planting tansy and teasel in the sockets of their eyes, ginger in their grins, lungwort in their ribs, and honeysuckle creeping up a trestle of their limbs. Brack, meanwhile, is learning to transform his shape, black wolf, Black rooster, black weasel, and black crow, black goat, black horse, black lamb. He hopes one day to ape the shadow of a man and claim Susa for his bride. In this way they were occupied, not quite content, nor yet quite dead, but biding time until that final winter when the tall ones came again. At last, one chill gloaming, Thin from a thousand-year fast, in ragged saffron parade they came, from thorny hill and barren land, white lights on their shoulders, burning roses in their hands. They sent an emissary, their diplomat and clown, a tall one of renown known to everyone who asks as the flabbergast. He was slim as salmon, with a graceful grease-paint face, lips like berries, teeth like diamond rings, a peacock for his top hat, a coat of sequins, and a belt of lizard skin. Susa thought he smelled of strange perfumes, but... Brack did not like him. Susa stood inside the cemetery gate, hands on hips. She had grown since her death. She was almost as tall as a tall one now, and no matter how he smiled and bowed, the flabbergast failed to move her. "'What do you want, old thing?' she asked. "'One more fiend in a fancy dress looking for a handout. "'Your way of strutting like you own the place doesn't please my dog. "'He thinks you're dangerous.' Just a lick, begged the tall one. A tailbone, a toe. You can grow your herbs anywhere. The dead will never know. Let us in. Let us eat. Let your guard down at last, and we will make you one of us, promised the flabbergast. Susa gazed across her garden, 
her grandfathers, their sons, the daughters of her cousins, and all their little ones, all dead, all gone, all time in Tarragon. And she a slave to their graves, though they had betrayed her and her only love. The black mink draped around her shoulders, gently licked her ear. Why not? asked Brack. Why not, indeed, said Susa Rhymes. Agreed, cried the flabbergast. The past is past. The tall ones palavered at the gate, slavering as Susa took a great gray key made of Pastor Fell's left knee and fit it to the lock. She undid what needed undoing, unglued what needed ungluing, and Brack, without ado, became the big black crocodile who ushered them through. The flabbergast was last to pass the gates. He and Crocodile Brack stood back to face each other. Brack lashed his armored tail while the tall ones smiled. Dear guardian, he said, I want nothing but the marrow you have hoarded, beg your pardon, warded all these years. These bones you have here underground, enough to go around for centuries. Now, Brack, stand up. Walk on two legs like a man. Shake my hands. Let us be companions in the twilight of the world. Brack reached within to rearrange the darkness, and midnight changed and grew a human skin. That night among the tombs, the tall ones, dreadful and well-fed, danced around a wedded pair who each wore bridal robes of saffron with lights upon their shoulders, bone and bramble in their hair. And when Susa bent to kiss Brack's open palm, a burning rose bloomed there. I may be mistaken, but I understand that was her first recording. After her move, she bought a snowball mic, so I hope we've unleashed a torrent. Come back, Claire. She blogs at csecooney.livejournal.com, and remember, beware the flabbergast. And now for the promised fact article for the evening. Now, this is a little piece from Mike Allen, and he's going to take us on what he's calling a tour of the abattoir. Mike? Hello out there, all of you who are listening to Tales to Terrify. My name's Mike Allen. And I would like to welcome you to the very first tour of the abattoir. Now, what abattoir exactly are we touring? The one inside my head, where countless characters over the years have gone to meet horrible ends, either because of things that I have seen, things that I have read, or even, in some instances, things that I have written. When Tony Smith asked me to start recording a monthly column for his new podcast, I asked him, well, Tony, what would you like it to be about? And Tony, in his oh-so-helpful way, replied, Oh, it can be about whatever you want. So, after pondering 
whatever I want and what that might mean in terms of a monthly podcast column, I came to these general conclusions, but they are not set in stone. By trade, I'm a journalist, so I imagine a smittering, a smattering, a splattering of the latest horror news appearing in this mix from time to time, and reviews of movies and books will also figure prominently. In fact, I've planned a couple for this first installment, so we'll see how that goes. But I would also like to bend and reflect Tony's invitation to me out to all of you. As I see it, this column can just as well be about whatever you would like me to talk about. I'm very much open to suggestions. And if you want to make suggestions, you are most welcome to abuse my personal email. That is mythicdelirium at gmail.com. And let me spell that. That's M-Y-T-H-I-C-D-E-L-I-R-I-U-M at G-M-A-I-L dot com. Please feel free to give me your feedback. Now, you might wonder just why my thoughts about the happenings in horror would be worth taking note of. And so, to that end, I thought I'd spend a few minutes introducing myself at the start of this venture and explaining where my interest in horror comes from. First, I'm a writer of horror. In fact, by coincidence, this very same month, I have sold my first collection of short fiction to Apex Publications, based out of Lexington, Kentucky, here in the United States, and the book that they will be bringing out is titled The Button Bin and Other Horrors. Now, if you are a long-time listener of Starship Sofa, that name might well ring a bell for you. The Button Bin was a Nebula Award finalist in 2009, and Tony asked me to record it for his program. And it might intrigue you to know, if you're familiar with that recording, that this book will also include a sequel to The Button Bin, a novella called The Quilt Maker, that was very fun to write, very nasty indeed. A couple of the other stories that will be appearing in this anthology have also been on Starship Sofa, uh, a little tale called An Invitation Via Email, and the Lovecraftian story Her Acres of Pastoral Playground that I recorded for the sofa this past Halloween. I am also an editor and publisher of horror. I've edited a three-volume series of anthologies called Clockwork Phoenix, and the horror stories from each of these volumes have gone on to be reprinted in year's best anthologies and, and even garnered some award nominations of their own. I'm very proud of that, and some of the writers who I've worked with I hope to be talking up in later installments of this column. It's funny, because I wasn't always a horror fan. When I was in third grade, I had a wonderful teacher who read Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven and the Telltale Heart very dramatically and creatively as a Halloween treat for the entire class. But somehow, I had managed to reach that age without ever being exposed to that level of morbidity and darkness. And so that reading actually traumatized me. I'd lay awake at night, and I'd see the ghost of that dismembered old man with the pale blue vulture eye come swirling out of the ceiling with his face contorted in rage. It triggered night terrors that didn't go away, really, until my late teens. But see, unpleasant as that was, I also acquired this 
obsessive morbid curiosity that drove me to seek out other horror tales, which, as you can imagine, only made this night terror problem worse. <laughs> by the time I was thirteen, I had read a number of stories by Howard Phillips Lovecraft that had me frightened of ghouls grabbing my ankles when I went down the dark basement stairs, and I'd partaken of my first Stephen King stories, which had me imagining undead women with silver eyes waiting behind the shower curtain at night. The way I dealt with this utterly irrational state of imaginary terror, interestingly, was not to avoid horror, but to finally saturate myself in it so thoroughly that it quit being so alien and terrifying, and instead became almost comforting and familiar in a very twisted way. As a teenager proper, my favorite author, as a matter of fact, was Clive Barker. I adored the books of blood. They were thrilling in how visceral they were and how they bent so many storytelling rules. Of course, this was the 1980s, when the most entertaining, not saying the best, mind you, but the most entertaining horror films were all about creative gore. And what Barker did was a reflection of that, but he also broke away from standard plot structure and redefined who these stories could be about. Folks at the fringe rather than the average middle-class families like you find in your typical Stephen King melodrama. I would say that that is when I started admiring horror tales, not just for content, but also for their craft. And I have to say, I think that the version of me who listened to those Poe stories in third grade would have his little mind blown were he to learn that I would have a horror collection of my own coming out someday. I think the high school me, writing punk rock lyrics based on the atrocities found in Barker's books, would probably consider it the most awesome thing he had ever heard. So anyway, for better or for worse, I am now a hardcore horror connoisseur. I'm very hard to gross out and very hard to scare, which can make me annoying to have around. My wife and I and a group of friends recently watched The Human Centipede, and while the rest of them were all groaning in disgust, I basically couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> to me, that movie played like dark comedy. And on a charitable day, I might well tell you that I think Tom Six was deliberately shooting for laughs. It's funny, you know, uh, if you're one of the people who really enjoys horror, then it's almost as if you've been initiated into a sort of secret social club where the tropes of these stories become endearing, uh, a source of comfort in a strange way. You can see one of the funnier manifestations of this in the merchandising of H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos, where you can buy plush dolls to tuck you in at night that are made to resemble Lovecraft's most terrifying monsters. The contrast between the innocuousness of these silly-looking dolls and the effect that the stories they came from had on you when you first read them turned the whole thing into this delightful in-joke that's popular enough it's practically spawned an industry. The same principle fuels a movie like Shaun of the Dead, Edgar Wright's sweeping spoof of all of the iconic zombie films. And there's a more recent movie in a similar vein 
called Tucker and Dale versus Evil that I bet you haven't yet seen, though you will want to once you get the opportunity. At least I'm going to try and convince you of that right now. Directed by Eli Craig, curiously enough, the son of actress Sally Field, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil is yet another one of those low-budget Canadian horror films like Ginger Snaps or Fido that brings a new twist to its subject matter by approaching it with a lot of affection, a dose of warmth, almost, and humor. These movies bring new energy to the genre and help it take little leaps forward. It's hard to describe this movie without making it sound utterly idiotic. It takes the staple of the redneck serial killer, epitomized by movies like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre or its inferior clone Wrong Turn, and flips all the expectations that come with one of these movies onto their heads, their severed heads to be precise. The rednecks in this story, Tucker and Dale, are a pair of lovable, bumbling, really nice guys. But a group of college students out for a weekend camping trip encounters them and judges them based on their appearance, assuming that Tucker and Dale are crazed and violent. The misunderstandings escalate until the college kids are managing to get themselves killed in gruesome accidents during attempts to lay siege to Tucker and Dale's vacation cabin. The survivors, who never managed to actually witness the circumstances of the deaths of their companions, only the aftermath, blame our heroes, who they believe have gone on a murderous rampage, while Tucker and Dale are increasingly bewildered by the suicidal behavior of the college kids. <laughs> It might sound like a thin joke stretched past its breaking point, but deft execution on the part of director Craig and wonderful acting by Tyler Labine, who plays Dale, and Alan Tudyk, who plays Tucker. Genre fans probably recognize them immediately from the television shows Reaper and Firefly, respectively. Totally sell the concept. If you're someone who's seen a number of examples of this particular kind of movie, Tucker and Dale gets even better, because you'll recognize any number of standard hillbilly stalker scenarios that get affectionately skewered, even as some of the characters get literally skewered, in the course of this delightful picture. And if you're a gore fan of any sort, there's plenty of it. But you might want to consider avoiding the red trailer video that's readily available on YouTube, as this gives away a lot of the movie's best moments. Now, if you allow me to presume that you are not just an aficionado of horror, but of horror comedy, then I probably don't even need to tell you that one of the best examples of this curiously spliced-together subgenre appeared exactly ten years ago. The ultra-low-budget Bubba Hotep, directed by Don Coscarelli, creator of the Phantasm series, and starring iconic B-movie actor Bruce Campbell, portraying Elvis himself, 
confined to a nursing home and doing his best to protect his fellow residents from a soul-devouring mummy. This director's next project, you may have heard already, is an adaptation of the internet phenomenon-turned-best-selling novel, John Dies at the End, written by David Wong, which is, by the way, a pseudonym for Jason Pargin, the senior editor of Cracked.com. My younger brother got me this book for Christmas a couple years ago, and I just got around to reading it, which I suppose in a way makes it timely. At least I'm going to pretend so for purposes of this column. It's another work that plays on familiar horror tropes for humor, as well as scares. It's not easy to describe the plot, which involves a drug nicknamed soy sauce that gives extrasensory perception to the people who ingest it or inject it. In part, because of the effects of the drug, the plot also involves talking dogs, demonic possession, animated monsters made out of cuts of meat, interdimensional travel, and exploding police officers. It might be easier to describe the concept than the actual plot. Imagine a long X-Files episode that borrows elements from Stephen King's more surreal novels, such as It. But instead of Mulder and Scully, the heroes are Dante and Randall from the movie Clerks. The narrator, David Wong, is the equivalent of the fuss-budget Dante in this scenario, while the John of the title more resembles the reckless Randall. It's intriguing to me that this story, which was first published on the Internet long before it became a book, much less was optioned for a movie, spawns such a cult following. Because as I read it, I found it at most a fun but mild diversion, somewhat funny sometimes and only occasionally scary. Though I'll admit, there's a scene where our narrator is forced to eat a large living spider that definitely gave me the willies. Spiders are one of my Achilles heels. There's also a lot of really effective paranoia building in classic conspiracy mode, which is part of why this book reminded me of The X-Files. And there's a very clever explanation built in for why, at times, the plot seems a bit incoherent. Though it's easy to assume that the reason is because the author was originally making this up as he went along, posting it on the internet, and didn't get around to tying it together until much later, you eventually learn, for wonderfully creepy reasons that I would not dare expose, that the narrator has had his memory altered so that he's unable to recall what really did happen during several of the events he recounts. It's also a book that's full of in-jokes. What won me over was, of all things, a throwaway reference to bizarre director David Lynch's nightmarish masterpiece Mulholland Drive. It'll be interesting to see if the movie version can retain that in-jokey feel. I have to say, I was somewhat skeptical that a movie version of this could even work until I learned that Don Coscarelli was directing it. Now... I'm massively intrigued. Isn't it fascinating how horror is no longer just a label for a tale that intends to scare? It references a subculture with its own codes and in-jokes that play a role in unifying like-minded fans throughout the world. 
I can guarantee you I never imagined it could work like that when I was back in that third-grade classroom, sitting in a circle with my fellow students, listening to Mr. McMurray reading The Raven and scaring the absolute hell out of me in a way that I had never experienced before. Folks, I thank you for indulging me, and I want to thank Tony as well for his patience. I'm off to a great start, and my debut column is a little late this month because I couldn't quite squeeze it in above other competing deadlines. Nonetheless, it's done, and I'm glad I did it, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Next month, I'm going to be talking about legendary author M.R. James and a respected and celebrated new writer, John Langan, who has written stories that update many of that master's antiquarian storytelling techniques. I'll also talk a bit about the recent controversy over the continuing use of the bust of H.P. Lovecraft as the World Fantasy Award trophy, and I'll likely add in some other things I haven't thought of yet. Again, if you have anything that you would like to hear about, feel free to let me know at mythicdelirium at gmail.com. Until then, stay scared. Thank you, Mike. I look forward to more of that. Mike just sold his first collection of horror stories titled The Button Bin and Other Horrors to Apex Publications. Uh, that's scheduled to appear in late summer or early fall of this year in trade paperback and ebook form. You can listen to the very disturbing Nebula Award nominated title story on the Starship Sofa. Mike is also an award-winning poet, by the way, and he's the editor of the poetry journal Mythic Delirium and the critically acclaimed Clockwork Phoenix anthology series. Thanks again, Mike, and we look forward to more from you. The main fiction tonight is Black Glass by Gary McMahon. I've not read a lot of Gary's work, but what I have read I've liked— I downloaded Rain Dogs after listening to Andy Remick's Horror, Anarchy, and Doom segment last week. I like it. I do not personally know Gary, so I'm reduced to giving you the facts of him. His fiction has appeared in magazines and anthologies in both the UK and the US, and he's been reprinted in both the Mammoth Book of Best New Horror and The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror. He's the British Fantasy Award-nominated author of Rough Cut, All Your Gods Are Dead, Dirty Prayers, How to Make Monsters, and Rain Dogs. He's also edited an anthology of original novelettes titled We Fade to Grey. Snuggle down, grip your warm beverage of choice, and stare into black glass. Black Glass by Gary McMahon She was out there again, the little goth girl. Hope could see her, leaning lazily against the bonnet of her black Mini Cooper and smoking a cigarette. This was the third night in a row, and her presence, rather than acting as a threat, 
was becoming something of a comfort. If she was out there, the world was moving along nicely. People were caught up in their petty affairs and the natural laws of supply and demand were operating as they should. Hope moved away from the bedroom window and slipped on his silk robe, enjoying the sensation of the material gliding across his naked torso. He glanced at his watch. It was 1am. Didn't the girl ever sleep? Entering the living room, he stood in the doorway and admired for the hundredth time his surroundings. The house was impressive. It never failed to promote in him a sense of awe and of pride that he was in a position to be able to buy such a property. Leaving off the light, he drifted across to the main feature, a huge west wall that was composed entirely of glass. It was an architectural victory of form over substance, and the logistics of it baffled him. How on earth had the builders managed to leave out a load-bearing wall and substitute it with glass? Yes, it was thick, perhaps two or three inches, but surely it wasn't as strong as bricks and mortar. Pope's mind boggled. He was a businessman, and such artistic or technical matters never failed to confuse him. If it was making money you were interested in, then Pope was your man. But if your line was something more creative, then you'd better go elsewhere. His ex-wife, Savannah, was the artistic one. Perhaps that was why the marriage had failed. While she thought nothing of spending his money, in her spare time she expressed the vulgarity of their wealth and spent hours weaving baskets or making pots. It was not something Pope could ever understand, nor did he want to. He watched the girl as she stubbed out her smoke on a fence post. She turned to face the house, watching for movement, looking for signs of life in the dead of night. He smiled, enjoying the sense that she could not see him watching her. It appealed to his voyeuristic nature. Another aspect in which he and Savannah had differed. Her idea of sex was pretty conventional, whereas he enjoyed more visual stimulation. The girl stepped forward and leaned against the fence that separated his property from the narrow lane. He could just make out the white blob of her face in the darkness, a dark blur of her black-clad body. He'd never seen her close up, but something about her sent shivers along his thighs. There was something sensual about the way she moved, and certainly something compulsive in the way she spied on the house, watching and waiting. But for what? Eddie Woe was dead, everyone knew that. His overdose had made all the national news, and there'd even been a documentary made about his last hours on earth. Pope scratched his chest, rubbing the warm flesh. The girl did not move. Since moving into the house, Pope had entertained several unwanted visitors. Long-haired youths who'd scaled the fence in search of souvenirs, overweight magazine photographers after a shot of the place where the lead singer of the proto-punk band Nefander had died, a persistent female fan who'd kept leaving white roses outside the main gates until the police had cautioned her. 
But this girl, the one who arrived during darkness and only left when the sun came up, was different from the usual acolytes of misery. For one thing, she never tried to gain entrance to the property. She just stood there, always in the same place, looking up at the huge glass wall, as if waiting for some kind of display. Pope smiled, an idea suddenly occurring to him. He backed away from the window so that he was standing in plain sight, as long as it wasn't too dark to see inside the room. The drapes were already open. He liked to be able to watch her, with his view unimpeded. Pope undid the belt of his robe and let the garment fall to the floor. He kicked it away, smiling. Then he clapped his hands twice. The signal for the automated lighting to come on. The room was suddenly filled with a bright white glare, bright as daylight, harsh as a schoolmistress. He knew that once the lights were on, the girl would be able to see inside. Her view of him would be unimpeded. For his part, the window suddenly became a vast black mirror, reflecting him in his full glory, along with the room surrounding him. He was pleased to note that he was fully aroused. This was the most turned on he'd felt in months, probably since the divorce. He couldn't see the girl, so her reaction to the eyeful he was offering would go unseen. Still, it was a price worth paying. He clapped his hands three times briskly and saw a flicker of stealthy movement behind him over his left shoulder. The lights went off. The window glass turned back from an opaque, reflective surface into a transparent one. Pope was disappointed to find that the girl was no longer there. He couldn't even see her little car moving off along the road because of the shaggy trees that obstructed his view. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify. 
and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hope turned away from the window, feeling obscurely snubbed. He glanced into the corner where he thought he'd glimpsed motion, but of course there was nothing there. He went back to bed, attempted and failed to masturbate, then slept uneasily for the remainder of the night. Next day the weather was dull, the sky overcast. After a light breakfast, Pope went for a walk around the property, enjoying his new domain. Ever since he was a young boy, he'd wanted to own a big house on the moors, It was a romantic notion, and one he'd almost dismissed until his clothing factory had made enough money to realise this stalled ambition. Now that he owned the place, he was unsure of what to do with it, but for now he was content to wallow in the feeling of having fulfilled a mission first formulated when he lived with his oversized family in a tiny back-to-back in a grubby southern suburb of Sheffield. From his current vantage point, The house looked even more impressive. It was sleek and modern, yet managed to retain a depth of character possessed by older buildings. There was a sense of permanence here, of the thing having sprouted from the ground rather than being physically constructed. And all paid for by shitty rock music, he said, smiling. Hope had no time for modern popular culture, unless there was money in it for him. His clothing label consisted of cheaply made generic outfits that were shipped to specific outlets, mainly pound shops and budget chain stores. His designers merely ripped off whatever look was in that season and cut their clothes to fit, so to speak. Minimum creativity, maximum profit. He tried to think of a tune by Nefander, but all that came to mind was a dirge he'd heard once in a crowded pub during a party Savannah had dragged him along to. Something to do with the arty crowd she often socialised with. It meant nothing to him, that racket. It came from a world he didn't even recognise. A place of leather and piercings and subculture and counterculture and clear disrespect for finance. Excuse me. Hope was so caught up in his own thoughts at first he didn't hear the voice. I'm sorry to disturb you. He turned around, his eyes settling first on the black Mini Cooper and then the girl who'd spoken to him. Recalling his antics of the night before, he felt suddenly embarrassed. But then his habitual manner kicked in and he was all smiles. Sorry, I didn't mean to be a nuisance, but are you the new owner? She was standing behind the fence, hands in the pockets of torn jeans, sunglasses covering her eyes despite the grey skies and heavy, dark clouds. Yes, yes I am. I'm afraid all the rock musician stuff was shipped out long ago before I moved in, so I can't help you with anything relating to him. She smiled. It was such an enigmatic expression that Pope was confused by it wondering what it meant. 
if that is what you're interested in, of course. She shook her head. Thick strands of long jet black hair fell from her ponytail, obscuring her narrow, high-boned cheeks. No, nothing like that. I used to know Eddie and his wife, that's all. I've been here many times before. Really, you visited here often? The girl's pale face coloured slightly beneath the coal-lined eyes. Her cheeks bloomed. Sort of. I used to live here with Eddie and Eva. Eva? Hope was nonpulsed. He knew almost nothing about the former owners other than they were rock stars. Eva was Eddie's wife. She went missing before he died. Pope didn't know what to say, so he let his instinct guide him. Would you like to come in? For a coffee, I mean. Have a look around the old place. Relive some memories. He didn't know why he was inviting the girl inside, but whatever impulse he was acting upon felt right. He realized for the first time that he was lonely. Sure, she said, shrugging her shoulders. Shall I come round to the gate? She prodded the barbed wire running along the top of the fence with a long, thin finger. Her nails were painted black and were sharpened to points. I'll let you in, said Pope, and turned away from her, heading towards the main entrance. As soon as she was out of sight, he missed her. She might be small, but she had real presence, like a movie star or a minor member of the royal family. She occupied space, rather than simply taking it up. He led her up to the house in silence, unsure of what to say now that he'd let her in. She kept a few paces back, as if studying him, and it made him feel uncomfortable. The voyeur had become the viewed. This way, but I'm sure you already know that. She smiled at him, as he shifted to one side to allow her access to the house and her step was light as she walked across the threshold. From behind, she was a wonderful sight. Narrow shoulders, trim hips, and a small, firm backside. He watched her as she mounted the stairs to the first-floor living quarters, enjoying the way the tight denim jeans hugged her slight curves, the way she moved with an unconscious grace. Would you like a drink? Pope headed straight for the kitchen area of the open-plan living space, taking two glasses from a high shelf. You got any brandy? He raised his eyebrows and nodded his head. I like brandy, said the girl, shrugging off her coat and collapsing into a chair as if she belonged there. And Pope realised that she did, even more than him. What's your name? He brought through the brandies, placing one on the table in front of her and taking a sip from the other. Alex Pope, what's yours? She leaned forward and placed a fingertip inside the glass, running it around the rim before plunging into the brandy. Then she slowly lifted it out of the glass and brought it up to her mouth. Lips parted, tongue sticking out in a small pink point. She placed the finger in her mouth and smiled. My name's Hannah. Pope sat down in the chair opposite, feeling suddenly clumsy and graceless in the company of this odd creature. 
She was so far out of his usual social sphere that he viewed her as a rare and exotic animal. He was used to spending time with stiff-haired women in business suits, going on blind dates with identical versions of the same dull model. So Helena was something new, something alien in his life. So, how did you know the previous occupants? She smiled. That's a funny way of phrasing it. He said nothing, just smiled at her gently mocking tone. Hannah took a mouthful of her drink, then put down the glass. Her lips were wet. Like I said before, I used to live here, in this house. I stayed for over a year, and I left when things got a bit tricky between Eddie and Eva. In what capacity did you stay here? Were you a guest? An employee? She giggled. It was incredibly enticing, and Pope found himself attracted to the petite girl in a way he'd not quite expected. A bit of both, really. Some would call me a groupie, but Eddie and Eva called me their muse. We loved each other, you see. All three of us. Slowly, the salacious implications of this dawned on Pope, and he hid his face behind his hand, keeping the glass to his mouth until he felt safe enough to lower it. Does that shock you? The fact that it was with them both? Her smile was flirtatious, a come on, if ever he saw one. She stretched out her short legs, kicking off her boots. The socks beneath were filthy, but it took away nothing from her earthly appeal. She curled her toes and Pope stared at her feet, wondering what they'd look like, naked. No, I'm not as uptight as I might appear. I've seen and done a bit in my time. He knew he sounded lame, like someone's middle-aged father trying to act cool. But that's what she did to him, made him feel confused and awkward and out of his depth. Her smile was maddening. He wanted to move over there, slip his arm around her and draw her close. Or better still, he wanted to watch her from afar, scrutinize her, without her even knowing. Better go. She bent over and put on her boots, stood, leaning all of her weight on one hip. Will, will you come back? Would you come back for dinner? She paused, thinking over the invitation. Her eyes shone, betraying the fact that she was still toying with him like a cat tormenting a mouse prior to the killing blow. I like you, Pope. You're a weird old geezer. So yes, I'll come for dinner. Tomorrow night. Cook me something nice, something special. She stood on her tiptoes and kissed him chastely on the cheek. But as she pulled away, she poked out her tongue and licked the side of his neck. Tomorrow, then? Yes, he said, stunned. Tomorrow. Don't worry, I'll let myself out. Pope spent the rest of the day ghosting around the house, putting things straight, adjusting his shelves, sorting through papers, and organising the files on his laptop. He told his PA that he should not be disturbed, and she sent him several updates by email. Things were moving along nicely at the clothing factory. His assistant manager, Mike Jessop, was handling things well. If he kept up the good work, 
the lad might be in line for a pay rise. Out of interest, Pope ran an online search for anything relating to Eddie and Eva Woe and called up over 200,000 results. He narrowed it down by entering a reference to henna. Amid innumerable mentions of henna tattoos, he saw a link to an article about a song called Handy Henna, one of Nefander's biggest hits. He'd never even heard of it. Scrolling down the online lyric sheet, he was both shocked and aroused to discover the highly sexual content of the song. His mobile rang, drawing his attention away from the laptop, and he fumbled at it from beneath a cushion on the sofa. He saw by the display that it was his ex-wife calling, and after only a short pause, he answered, Hello, Savannah. Alec, how are you? Did the move go well? Yes, it went fine. Everything's just about sorted. There was a short pause, during which he could almost sense her organising her words before she spoke. So, she continued, it's as nice as it looks on TV, the house. It's a marvellous place, one that I'm sure will increase in value. Savannah laughed, and the sound was so familiar that it was like a series of tiny pinpricks in his heart. Despite their many differences and the pressures that had driven them apart, Pope had never really stopped loving her, and the fact that she still kept in touch spoke volumes regarding Savannah's own feelings towards him. Sometimes he wondered why the hell they'd ever let things get so out of hand. Same old Alec, obsessed with commerce. You know me, I always did have an eye for business. Have you even listened to any of Nefanda's music, be honest? Pope laughed. You know me too well, of course I haven't. I'm more Marla than Motorhead. And that reference alone ably demonstrates your incredible lack of knowledge when it comes to popular music, old boy. She waited until they'd both stopped laughing at him before continuing. They were quite a seminal outfit, you know, a big deal in the world of alternative music. David Bowie discovered Eddie Woe busking on a sidewalk in New York and helped him produce the band's debut album. A lot of famous musicians worked with them, even more wanted to work with them. You don't say. Pope picked up the remote control and turned on the television, muting the volume. He watched the news while Savannah spoke, remembering why they'd not lasted. The gulf between them, their opposing tastes and interests, appearing all over again. Yes, and what's more interesting is that Eva Woe was the creative force behind it all. She wrote all the lyrics, composed a lot of the music. Eddie was little more than a talented frontman, a heavy metal crooner. Hmm, yeah. Are you even listening, Alec? She knew he wasn't. He never did. But she put up with him, even now, tolerating his maddening lack of awareness of her needs. Sorry, Sav, I'm a little preoccupied. Things on my mind, you know. Was there a reason you rang, other than just a chat, I mean? Okay, I'll come out with it. I've met someone, Alec. Someone nice. An artist. I wanted you to hear first, before any of your office cronies spilled the beans. For a moment, Pope's heart seemed to swell, as if filled with air, then instantly deflated. It was a curious sensation, and not one he'd ever experienced before. His heart was a little too old and weathered to have broken, but he felt sure that at least a fracture had occurred. 
Alec? Ah, yes. Thanks for letting me know in person. It would have been hideous to be told by one of my staff or a mutual friend over cocktails. I appreciate it, Sav. I really do. More silence. This time it seemed meaningful. You know I'll always care for you. Some things can't die. I hang on, probably forever. I'd never do anything to hurt you. Her words, however well meant, sounded too much like pity for Pope to bear. He gripped the mobile phone tightly, wishing he could end the call, but too lost in the moment to simply press a button. I... I've met someone too. Yesterday. He regretted his compulsive confession immediately after saying the words. Really? Savannah's voice rose by an octave. She sounded like she'd been let off the hook. It's... it's early days, yes. I, I mean, we've only just had one date. Not even that, really. She's coming over for dinner tomorrow night. He was blustering, and they both knew it. Backtracking, trying to take back what he'd already said. It's nothing too heavy. I'm glad for you, Alec. Truly. Who is she? Would I know her? He couldn't help but laugh, and immediately regretted doing so. What? Come on, tell me. Savannah sounded slightly hurt, but almost managed to hide it. She used to know those rock stars. She stayed here as a house guest for a while. That's how we met. She was hanging round outside. Pope was digging himself deeper into a hole. Instead of deflecting Savannah's pity, he was generating even more of it. He could feel her caring vibrations coming through the phone, soft hands stroking his cheeks. Oh, Alec, do be careful. How old is this girl? Listen, Savannah, I I really do have to go. I've got work to do. He couldn't even think of a decent excuse, falling back instead on an old, well-worn favourite. Just promise me you'll be careful, Alec. Don't rush into anything foolish. Goodbye, Savannah. I'll ring you next week. We we can have lunch. Bring your new artist friend. And with that, he finally ended the call. It was growing dark outside. The sky was turning to charcoal slashes and the vast moor was losing itself in the gloom. Pope turned off the silent TV and walked towards the window wall, taking in the view. It was beautiful. The sun was a red smear on the western edge of the horizon, and the earth looked soft and spongy beneath the gathering weight of night. He watched the darkness gather in small clusters, then invade the scene, blanking out huge sections of the landscape. He wondered if Henna would resume her nightly vigil, then decided that she probably wouldn't. There was no longer any need. Like a vampire, she could enter any time, now that she'd been invited inside. When it was fully dark, he clapped his hands twice, bringing up the lights. The window turned into a mirror, reflecting his sorrowful figure. The sparse furniture, the ultra-modern kitchen appliances, the empty doorways. He must have been mistaken when he saw a pale, narrow oval ducking down out of sight behind a kitchen workbench, and again when a dark shape flitted across the space in front of the open bedroom door. Jesus, he muttered, I'm not old enough to be senile, not yet. He smiled, but it was forced, faked. 
manufactured to reassure himself that he was not losing his mind. Another fluttering movement caught his eye, this one low down near the floor. Then suddenly above his head, Pope raised his hands to extinguish the lights, and just as he brought his palms together in an aggressive gesture, he glimpsed something impossible in the mirrored glass. A face, a thin white face, and it was looking directly into his eyes, hovering over one shoulder. Henna arrived just before sundown, and after he let her into the kitchen, she stood at the big window watching the sunset. Pope busied himself in the kitchen, mixing martinis. He had no desire to look through that window. He'd slept badly after retiring to bed last night, kept awake by strange night fears that alternately reared above him and crouched at the foot of his bed. Turning on the lights offered no protection. These spectres dwelt in the brightness. The lights were on, but Pope felt edgy. He knew that he was safe from whatever vision had plagued him now that he was no longer alone in the room, but still he felt a subtle oppression, a dread presence hanging over him. It wasn't that he did not feel safe in his own home, it was more the fact that this was not his home, nor had it ever been. This house belonged to the dead, to the ghosts of a recent past, and a milieu from which Pope was excluded, but his mysterious guest had always been party to. He handed Henna her drink and sat down on the sofa, hoping, yet dreading, that she might occupy the space next to him. I hope you like pasta, he said, trying to break the tense silence. I'm a decent cook, but my skills are limited. She turned away from the window. He saw her bare back reflected there, the complex straps of her thin, black, blondage blouse resembling strange markings on her ivory shoulders. She was tiny, like a doll, but there was a strength to her that seemed unfathomable. Her pointed black fingernails tapped the glass. Her dark eyelids fluttered, her maroon lips trembled. In that moment, Pope saw her as the muse she claimed to be. He pictured the three-way lovemaking, the naked songwriting sessions, the drink and drug binges that had undoubtedly taken place within these shivering walls. He viewed them all momentarily reflected in her lake-dark eyes and in the black glass of the window behind her. I spent some happy times here, she said, lowering herself onto the floor at his feet. She tucked her legs up under her bottom like a small child at story time and sipped her martini. I can still feel the creative energy, like it's trapped between the bricks and ingrained in the walls. Can you feel it? Yes, he lied, hoping that it made him more interesting, more appealing to this flighty little being. Her hand strayed up and onto his knee. His flesh trembled beneath her touch. He gulped at his drink, troth dry, parched. Her palm was hot like fire. Her skin burned him in places left cold since long before his divorce. When Eva went missing, Eddie curled up into his shell. He climbed into the bottle and the drugs baggie and didn't come out again. Six months later, he was dead. 
I came round after she vanished, tried to bring him out of whatever trance he was in, but he sent me away, like he didn't even know me. Why did you leave in the first place? If things were so good between the three of you, what happened to send you away? He was melting at her touch. His flesh ran like liquid, sliding from the bone. There were arguments, fights. Things turned... They turned nasty. Eddie wanted to sell the rights to some songs, let them be used on TV ads. He was offered big, big money. Her hand rested on his thigh. She shuffled across the polished floor, drawing closer. Eva wrote all the songs, at least all the good ones. The publishing details all credited Ewo as the lyricist, and not many people knew that that meant Eva. They all assumed Eddie was the artist, but he was just the face of the music, the one who fronted the group. The music was all Eva's. It belonged to her, and she belonged to it. There was no way she'd allow it to be swallowed up by the corporate machine, to be raped and cannibalized by advertising men. She was right on top of him now, her arms around his calves, tiny breasts pressing against his knees. Then her hands went under his legs, her fingers kneading the tough muscle of his thighs. Those halakin days could never last. I just hoped they might last longer than they actually did. Tears ran down her cheeks, smudging the coal from around her eyes, creating thin black hollows. After Eva left, Eddie's lifelong interest in the occult apparently grew stronger and began to consume him. Last I heard before he died, he'd been hosting all kinds of freaky meetings and sabbaths. Then she was straddling him, pulling him close, pressing her meagre weight down onto his body and seeking solace in his embrace. Her kisses were hungry, almost obscenely so. Her eyes were closed, not even seeing him. Pope didn't care. He took all that she could give, was happy with whatever scraps she might throw from the table. They moved onto the floor, taking off their clothes, yet unable to break contact in case something was ruined. He was sitting, his back ramrod straight, and she was squatting in his lap. Their breaths were shallow, desperate, their movements harsh, more like fighting than lovemaking. Hope, ever the voyeur, clapped his hands twice, and then glanced over her shoulder and into the window, watching the reflection of her back in the glass, the bunching of her muscles, the twitching of her buttocks, the way the sweat ran down her spine, and a face appeared on the back of her head, superimposed like a photographic image, but definitely there, present, immutable. The face was bone-white, thin as a post, and its features were abstract patterns, round, black holes for eyes, thin, black, slit of a mouth. Hope bit down a scream, pressing his face into Hannah's bony shoulder to blot out the vision. When again he looked up, Hannah was panting like a horse, her passion almost spent, but his own ardour had been truncated. But his own ardour had been truncated. The face had become a figure, the figure long, wispy, like a stick of licorice, 
floated across the expanse of the darkened glass, moving agonizingly slowly as through a thick slurry. It spun in a smooth circle, then came to rest, facing him once more. A scrawny arm rose to head height. Boneless fingers formed a small fist, and the thing began to knock on the glass. Pope screamed, No! Tearing his hands away from Henna's moist flesh, he clapped his hands three times in rapid succession. The lights went off. The figure was no longer there. It's Eva. Henna spoke coolly, calmly, as if they were discussing a luncheon guest. She's here, still here. Somehow he trapped her in the glass. Pope was shaken, but he managed to pretend that he'd pulled himself together. He still wanted to impress this wild, sensual creature, and considered the illusion of bravery a good place to start. What are you talking about? I mentioned about Eddie's fascination with the occult, the black arts, forbidden knowledge. He'd studied it for years, compiling a library of weird texts and learning almost forgotten rituals. He once told me the glass in the window was made by melting down the stained windows of churches where black masses had been held. He said that there was power in the glass, and he only had to find a way of tapping into that power. I thought it was just the usual drug talk at the time, but now I'm not so sure. He said he used a method called scrying to contact something in the glass, something that answered and demanded a sacrifice. Pope paced the room, averting his gaze from the window. Even with the lights out, he felt threatened by it. Henna sat on the floor by the window, one hand held out before her, fingers splayed against the glass, the ends blanched, white and bloodless. I can feel it, like it's vibrating, very gently, it's thrumming. Pope took a shot of whiskey straight from the bottle, leaned against the kitchen bench, closed his eyes and counted silently to ten. Perhaps when he finished counting, she'd be gone. I have an idea. No such luck. She was still there, still excited by the whole thing. What? What is it? Hannah stepped across to the table by the door and picked up her bag, a large floppy shoulder bag made of saggy old leather and lace. She balanced the bag on one knee and made a big show of rummaging inside. Then she pulled out a square, flat package. I brought you a gift tonight. I, I know it's not your thing, but I thought you might like to hear some of their music. Some of her music. She slid the record out of its protective plastic envelope. The sleeve art featured an illustration of a horned goat standing on its hind legs, playing an electric guitar. Subtle, said Pope, feeling more like his old self. Hannah's smile was almost coy. She walked across the room, eyes scanning every corner. Now you're going to tell me you don't even own a record player. Pope shrugged his shoulders. I only have CDs. I can't even remember the last time I bought a vinyl record. Hannah's body went slack. 
her entire posture altered, making her look old, defeated. The record slipped from her grip and hit the floor, rolling on its edge across the room and finally coming to rest by the window where it spun before falling face up. The album was called Black Glass and the irony of the title was not lost on Pope. Wait, he said, remembering something. When I moved in here, it was a bunch of old stuff that had been left behind, an old acoustic guitar, some music tapes, paperback books, and a very old-fashioned record player. I'm sure of it. Hannah looked up, her eyes aglow. Where are they? I stashed them in the garage. Outside, unlocking the garage doors, Pope glanced up at the living room window. Hannah stood there, staring out into the night or perhaps peering into some world contained within the glass. And for a moment he considered climbing into the car and leaving her there with her own madness. But then he remembered that it was a shared insanity. It was Pope who had actually seen the figure. Henna simply put a name to the spirit in the glass and claimed she knew what to do about it. Back upstairs, he placed the record player on the floor and plugged it into the nearest electrical outlet. It was an old machine, outdated by decades, but still willing to function. A green light flashed on. Some internal mechanism began to whir. What do we do now? Just play the record? Hannah placed the album onto the turntable and faced him. She was breathing heavily and her normally pallid cheeks were flushed. Her chest was reddened too, as if she was sexually aroused, the blood rushing to her extremities. Hope waited for her to answer. This is their debut album, the one that announced them as a force to be reckoned with. Eva told me that she'd poured everything into this record and that there were hidden messages planted in it for those interested enough to look for them. Her fingers ran along the grooves of the record, caressing them, warming them up for action. What, like that old heavy metal record? That's said to contain a satanic verse if you play it backwards. He'd meant it as a quip, a glib comment, to demonstrate how absurd he found this whole situation. He'd conveniently forgotten his terror of less than an hour before, and this melodramatic mumbo-jumbo was further distancing him from the image he'd viewed in the glass. The black, black glass. Exactly like that. Oh, come on, you don't really believe this rubbish. Hannah grabbed him by the forearm, held on tight. She was a lot stronger than she looked, this waif-like girl. Seriously, it's the kind of joke that would have appealed to both of them. And Eva used to tell me that if anything ever happened to her, I could always reach her through this record, through the private, hidden messages she'd left for me. Pope pulled away, shuffling backwards on his haunches. Then he stood pursuing safety in a corner of the room. I'm not doing this. It's ridiculous. I mean, I can go halfway toward believing there's a ghost trapped in the glass of that window, but the rest of this is so outlandish that under different circumstances it would be funny. Hannah stood, approaching the window. In the darkness, she resembled a lithe jungle cat stalking its prey. She made a little circle, then stood before the glass, watching, waiting, thinking. 
Then, slowly, she raised her tiny, black, nailed hands, clapped twice, and the lights came on. At first, there was nothing but the room's reflection, with the two of them waiting in it. Hope watched his face, and was appalled at the fear held there. By stark contrast, Hannah was a study in calm detachment. She seemed completely at ease with the unknown. Just think of it, she said, her voice low, barely rising above a whisper. All the money you'd make when you announced to the world that you found Eva woe and that she's writing new music. Her words were like a prayer or a hymn to all that he found holy. Money and the pursuit of riches, commerce, finance. To hell with art. Now she was singing his song and he began to take up its melody, tapping his feet and shaking his mojo. They'll be queuing up to work with her. They'll be queuing up to work with her, all the modern greats, singing her new songs, and the fans will turn out in their thousands, paying through the nose to see her perform live or buy her records. It's a cash cow, a surefire route to millions. And finally, he was sold on the idea. He crossed the room to where the little record player sat on the floor, bent down and flicked the switch to start the music. He stayed the motion of the vinyl disc with his hand, a purely impulsive gesture that felt insanely, wonderfully right, and pushed it backwards against the normal rotation. As the reverse bars of a weird tune he'd never even heard of, yet sounded strangely familiar, began to fill the room. Pope watched as a figure shimmered into being, forming out of the very air around them. The figure was not in the room. It was only present in the reflected reality, swirling in the glass like a strange fluid flaw in its construction. Hannah's hips began to move sinuously, her arms twirled at her sides. She mouthed the backwards lyrics to the song that seemed to fill the spaces between air molecules. Pope stood in awed silence, watching the display, his voyeuristic tendencies given free rein as the women danced together, one an imperfect reflection of the other, but neither quite sure which was the original and which the frail copy. Cracks appeared in the surface of the glass, crazy patterns that bisected the scene, moving diagonally like drugged-up worms, cleaving the window into several separate pieces. But instead of breaking completely, the window remained in place. The cracks multiplied, becoming a mosaic, a picture made up of a thousand pieces, until finally the destruction ceased. Powdered glass dimmed the air like mist. Henna danced in place, an animated statue, a ghost in the glass, stepped forward. At last, moving out of her frame, the separate jigsaw pieces of her image coming together, repairing the whole only when she had descended into the room, the real room. Pope opened his mouth, said, Pah! 
He had no idea of what exactly he was trying to communicate. All he could do was repeat the absurd sound. He was no longer pushing the record. The backwards music continued playing on its own. Pah! He stood and took a hesitant step towards the entity that was forming from the floating glass fragments. A beautiful, willowy woman with ash, blonde hair and emerald eyes, whose face was alabaster and body was surely carved from soapstone. The music stopped. He took another step and hit an obstacle. His nose flattened against something cold and hard and immovable. His cheek smeared as he turned his head to see. The two women smiled at him. He noticed that they were holding hands, choking back a scream, holding back the truth. Pope began to hammer at the glass. Then he did scream, but his voice was hoarse. The sound was dull, mono, like an old record played on an ancient device, all cracks and background hiss. Henna, his little goth girl, let go of her companion's hand. Her fingers came away reluctantly, as if she never again wanted to release her grip on the thing she loved most in the world. This world, that world, the world beyond the glass. She brought up her hands, held them out in front of her face, stretched out her arms, clapped three times, and the lights went out. Pope screamed again as the women turned away, dismissing his muted cries and disappearing into the darkened room. But they did not hear him. He pushed himself away from the glass and turned to survey his new world. Around him was only darkness. His suddenly etiolated limbs moved laboriously, as if through mud. Far ahead, from somewhere deep within the artificially thickened blackness, there came the sound of someone tittering. This was followed by a noise like heavy, dragging footsteps. Pope waited, hearing distant music that he could not name, and prepared to meet whatever had just begun to chant his name. And thank you, Gary. And right now, Gary is working simultaneously on two novels. From experience, I know how much fun that is. So, best to you, Gary. For more on him, he blogs at www.garymcmahon.com. That's G-A-R-Y-M-C-M-A-H-O-N.com. And thank you, Gareth Stack, for your narration, Gareth's Irish, as you may have noticed. He's a writer, a comedian, and the producer of two comedy series, The Invisible Tour Guide, a fictional tour of historic Dublin, and The Emerald Arts, a fictional arts program broadcast in 2011 on Dublin's Near FM. 
Gareth has written for a variety of magazines, performed all over Ireland, as well as running his own alternative comedy shows, Exchange Words and Marshmallow Ladyboy Jesus, which have featured some of the best of Irish comedy. He's previously narrated several stories for the Starship Sofa, including Terry Bisson's Billy and the Wizard. So thanks again, Gareth. And that's it for the evening. Thank you for listening. So blow out the candles, pull the covers up and over, and don't let the silence get you. We'll be back next week with... But no, that's a surprise. Good night, and, of course, pleasant dreams. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.